0: Today we're going to conclude, I think you, some of you are going to say amen, but we've been a long time in this, talking about elders, and we're going to conc- conclude this section, and we're going to look at a lot of scripture. I'm going to read a lot of scripture today, and we, we've learned in the past of what an, what an elder cannot be. Today we're going to learn what an elder is to be, but also we're also going to learn what an elder is to do. And we'll, our verses will be in Titus, but don't turn there yet. Our verses will be Titus 1, 8, and 9. But I want you to turn just for a second to 1 Timothy 3. We're going to read these uh, first seven verses. And we notice here, and this is something I've been looking at all weekend. I've been talking to, uh, I've been driving John and Blake crazy. Uh, they've titled me and speaking a certain way. They call it uh, Chase Cartmel started this word. I speak Phil, I think Philoese, is that what it's called? Philonese? So I don't come across real clear when I'm talking or I'm texting. I think I drive them crazy. It's obvious that these guys do not have the gift of interpretation. So uh, anyway, so we've had a good time discussing this, but there is an issue here in First Timothy that's different than, uh, than Titus, and it just really, it interests me. And uh, I wanted to look at that Uh, for a second, but let's just read the parallel count in here about eldership in uh, 1 Timothy 3. I'll begin with verse 1. It says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And what we see here, man, this is exactly what Titus is saying over there. And then here in Timothy, he adds a couple more things here that's interesting. He says, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And just notice here in verse 6, it says, he must not be a recent convert. Okay? And there's a, a couple of things that we can look at with this. To me, it's very obvious. When somebody's born again, they what? They're, they're not mature. They're an infant in faith. They don't... They're not able to teach. They've just been saved. They don't know the doctrines of Scripture. They don't know how to teach those. They don't know how to... uh uh refute the false teaching at, you know right after salvation so we know that a recent convert can't do that also know that when somebody's saved guess what it takes a little time it takes a little time to find out if they have these these moral qualifications you know when somebody gets saved day one you're not going to know that they're not a drunkard you're not going to know that they're not arrogant you're not going to know that they're not a lover of money. That's going to take a little time to figure all those things out. So obviously, obviously, you cannot be a recent convert. It takes time to mature. But I was just curious of why, why this was not the case. Why did, did he not say this to those in Titus? And I'm only going to say what Scripture says ultimately Ultimately, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't really know. And I'll, I'll, I'll be like John Bartels. Uh, I'm gonna place this out for your consideration. It's not, it's not anything new. I definitely have read this, these things, but I can't say that this is 100% the reason. But he, t- he tells, he tells these, uh, Timothy in these, uh, the Ephesian church, they can't be a, a recent convert. Why? What will happen? Because he could what? He could become puffed up with conceit and fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And if you look back at what happened to the devil, devil, he was, he was a, there's different levels of angels, by the way. Uh, Lucifer was a cherubim along with, we have others mentioned in the Bible also, the cherubim. So he was in the presence of God, but he got very prideful And he wanted to elevate himself to be God or over God. And so we see here in verse six, he's equating uh, what could happen to this potential elder that he may be prideful. And again, the only thing that I can, this isn't scripture, the only thing that I, that I'm thinking that in the Ephesian church, they're I'm thinking possibly there was a, a different maturity level with this Ephesian church. We do know that Paul was was there for three years. You know, the, the disciples walked with uh, Jesus for three years. Uh Paul studied, was discipled by Christ himself for three years. You can learn a lot in three years. The apostle Paul was in the Ephesian church for three years, so they were exposed to some great teaching. So I would say... I would say that it's very possible that this specific church had a higher level of maturity possibly than those in the churches of Crete. I don't know that for a fact. And if you elevated a man up to... uh, uh And if you met the qualifications, but it was a fairly new convert, and if you put him in a position with other mature, godly men, I, there is a tendency, again, my opinion, that he could be puffed up. Just to give you an example, you know... If Charles Spur- Spurgeon was in this church and all of a sudden I was elevated, uh, as an elder right here beside Charles Spurgeon. You know what? I think I was, I think I was something. Me and old Charles. Yeah, it's Charles Spurgeon. Hey, I'm one of him. I'm an elder too. Okay, you got that? Uh, so it's easily to become prideful. Uh, I took, uh, this ain't in my notes. I, I, I should stick to this, but, uh, I photographed a lot of things at the, the Peabody Hotel, uh, proms and Christmas parties of company. Kelly's been there, and Sandy has too, I'm sure. So you go in there, and uh, you go to the front desk. I'm looking for Ballroom C. I'm photographing a prom. Yeah, it's down there, down there to the right. I'm like, okay, I've got my cameras. Sandy, Kelly, bring the cameras and the lights, so. And we go down there. But there was a time at the Peabody Hotel, I did have an appointment to photograph somebody. His name, me and my daddy did, by the way, was Morgan Freeman. Okay, Morgan Freeman. So when I go to the desk now, I ask the lady, Here, I am Phil Ramsey. I'm here to photograph Morgan Freeman. (laughs) Right this way, Mr. Ramsey. So I'm walking down the hallway, and Morgan Freeman's in that room, you know. And I was kind of puffed up. You know why? Because I'm photographing Morgan Freeman. Don't mess with me. So anyway, back to the notes. You can't, hey. I will say this, for those elders in Crete, same issue. Yes, he said it to those guys in 1 Timothy, but really, it can happen to anybody in any church. So, I'm good with that, right? Uh, He he could be puffed up. Alright, so let's move on. He also says this, which is interesting, that and verse seven, moreover, he must be thought well of by outsiders. Think about that. Think about that. The, the, the elder, the pastor, the bishop, not only does he have to meet these qualifications within the congregation, what everybody thinks about in Covington, they have to think about the elder in a very good way. Meaning, they don't have to, agree with what he teaches or preaches or anything like that. But they got to look at Mark here and say, you know, I am yeah, I don't like what Mark teaches. Uh, I'm in a different denomination. I don't agree with that. But you know what? Mark's a good guy. I can't think of, in all reality, I can't think of anything negative to say about, about Mark. So guess what? A qualification... For an elder is, in our situation, you ready? Covington and surrounding counties, what do you think of Mark? You, can you tell me something about Mark that we don't know about? And guess what? It's possibly good. And if there is something to know about Mark, we need to know that. So they have to have a good reputation with outsiders. Nothing sticks to this man. His life is not characterized by sin. Is he perfect? No. Will he blow his temper sometimes? Yes. Will he do some of these things he's not supposed to do? Yes. But this is not his life. Okay. So that was a couple of the differences I noticed in between those two. Let's turn to Titus real quick. And uh, Titus 1, I'm going to read, I'm just going to start at verse 7. That's where Blake was last week. It says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. That's a monstrosity of a word there, by the way. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But, now we're seeing a contrast. He cannot be this, but he's got to be this. Hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word that's taught, so that... He may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. But the first thing it says, it must be hospitable. He must be hospitable. The word actually means to, in the simplest sense, means to love strangers. Hebrews 13 says, "...let brotherly love continue." Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for there, thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Of course, we, scripture speaks of those accounts definitely in the Old Testament. So this word here, hospitality, it doesn't mean that, uh, uh, yes, we should be kind to people we know. That's a given. Family, friends, people we know, yes. But here specifically, it says the command means to do that. What? With strangers. That's people you don't know. Open your home. Open your hearts. And at its core, and looking at it in context of the early church, this would mean o- opening your homes to brothers and sisters who that you don't know, who are strangers. And Acts, that's really what that was about. We'll talk about that in a second. But it says, don't neglect which means this is what is expected. Neglect takes the meaning of don't forget this, don't put this on the back burner, and that's very easily to do. I don't know about y'all, but life is busy. Life is busy. If you have kids, you definitely know that life is busy. Everyday patterns of life, your work, uh, some obligations that you have, quickly, very quickly, what do they do? It fills up. It fills up your schedule, and it's so easy to not do this. But we should. Not all, the elders must, but it's a command to all people. And notice that hospitality. It's not a spiritual gift. When somebody says that word, sometimes they automatically just kind of throw it in those those spiritual gift categories. But that's that's not my gift. I don't show hospitality. I wish I had the gift, but I don't. No, it's not a gift. It's actually a command. It's a command. For who? Hey, elders have to do it. They have to exhibit a lifestyle of doing that. But all God's people are commanded to do this. Romans twelve nine. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. What does it mean to seek? It means to look for. You don't sit back and wait for it to come to you. It means this is something that you actively do. You are to go And seek to show hospitality, and what's neat—it's not. This is not something new in the New Testament, by the way. Showing hospitality, and it just shows how wonderful and beautiful God's word is. The consistency of how He operates uh, in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, and we see God's people in the old and the new doing these things that we're supposed to do. Leviticus nineteen, beginning with verse thirty-three, says. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him. Who? The stranger. Well, how do we love him? You love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Lord your God. So God is telling his people that they too we're strangers and when you get to the land guess what do you do those people that come in you love them you treat them the same way that you've been you've been treated deuteronomy 10:18 he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow he loves the sojourner giving him food and clothing love the sojourner therefore for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt In Job 31, 29, Job's explaining his righteous deeds. He says, This, I have rejoiced at the misfortune of my enemy, or have I rejoiced at the misfortune of my enemy, or become excited when evil found him? No. I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life and a curse. Have the people of my tent not said, Who can who can find one who has not been satisfied with his with his meat? The stranger Has not spent the night outside, for I have opened my door to this traveler. Job here is exercising hospitality, and that's what God does through His people. We are to show hospitality. They were a Israel was a stranger in a foreign land, but and you know what? In reality, I love what Ephesians two says, and we need to think about this. Because we too are strangers. Ephesians 2.12 Remember that you were at at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who, who previously were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ what describes our lives as Christians? If you're around me long enough, uh I usually work this in four out of five of my conversations. We're simply pilgrims here. We too are strangers. We too are passing through. We're just like Abraham in a sense. This is not our home, it says in Hebrews eleven nine. By faith, he lived as a stranger in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, those whose architect and builder is God. And since when we welcome stranger into our homes, what we're doing, what we're doing is modeling Christ. We're modeling Christ. And just think about that. Think about how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ, but even over and beyond that, how we treat people that are outside of Christ. Think about what that does to your evangelism, by the way. Blake said, it's been several months ago, you saw somebody, uh, I guess you're on the way home, I don't know, but some, some lady had a flat tire. Blake did not know that that afternoon he would spend a big part of his day and checking an account, <laughs> uh, ministering to this lady on the side of a road. You was there for probably several hours, wasn't you? But anyway, but just think about how, how in a sense by, by getting out of your comfort zone and dealing with people you don't know, showing them love, how that increases, increases the, uh, your opportunity to evangelize. And, and when we get to Titus 3, we're going to be talking more about that. So you got to think about this. This church, uh, the, the beginning church in Acts, they didn't have uh, Airbnbs. They didn't have Hilton hotels. We have those type of places on every corner in America. Really, in reality, their uh, situation was a little bit different than ours. Uh, in the book of Acts, the beginning of the church, if you were traveling from place to place and you didn't know anyone in that area, you had to stay in some very dangerous places. Hotels were bad back in the in the day. Hotels can be bad today, can't they, Jim? <laughs> I, fixed, I was driving the bus the other day and there was about uh, 10 cop cars at the hotel down here on the road. There's bad things that happen in hotels. <laughs> but it's bad now, but back then it was extremely dangerous. And you think about those at the beginning of of Acts when he preached the gospel, 3,000 were saved right there on the spot and that number just got bigger and bigger and bigger. A lot of these guys didn't go back home. You know why? They couldn't. They'd be disowned. If you converted to Christ back then, you trusted Christ, believed and be baptized, your life was over. Your life was over. You could lose your job, your income, your family, your friends. Their lives depended on who? Other believers, other Christians. The elder must not just consider, but he must show hospitality. It's not optional. It's not optional for him. But I'm going to tell you something. It is a command for every one of us here. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but the Christians are the most persecuted people on the planet. They are. All these other religions, they get a free pass. But if you say you belong to Christ, guess what? You're targeted. They want to shut you up and shut you out. And when we do that, when we live as Christians in America, what we want to do because of all this anti-Jesus, anti-Christ culture, we just want to say, just forget about it. And what we do, we recluse. We go to work. We get that day over with, what do we do? We get in our car and we zoom home. We hit that garage door opener, garage door goes up, we go in and we shut that garage door opener and we hope nobody comes to see us. We don't want anything to do with anybody. That's the way it is. That's the exact opposite of how we should be, especially in this this day and time. So we are to show hospitality first and foremost to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then that expands to, uh, other Christians that we don't know, but also expands to people we don't know. People who are, aren't in Christ. And you do have to have a brain. You do have to exercise wisdom. You know, I've had two girls in the home, uh, for a long time. I'm probably not going to bring a, 21 year old guy into my home, uh, under, I don't care what his situation is, I'll take care of him, but probably not gonna bring him in my home, but I would take care of him. So do you want to exercise wisdom in that? But it, but it could be where, well, do you do it to homeless people? Do you, do you bring them in your home? Well, you could. I mean, you really could. You gotta think about that. You know, you gotta think about that. Galatians 6, 9 says, Uh, Let's not become discouraged in doing good, for in due time we will reap. For in due time we will reap, if we do not become weary. So then, while we have opportunity, grace, let's do good to all people, right? And especially those in the household of faith. So you got to get out of your comfort zone. You have to get out of your comfort zone. It's not easy. The elder must do this. And every Christian is commanded to also. That brings me to a scripture here. This is probably one of the most twisted scriptures that I hear that's taken out of context. It's going to take me a second to read it. But but it does prove the point uh, of what I'm talking about here. It's in Matthew 25, 31. And this is, uh, this is, I believe at the, yeah, at the end of time here. This is, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will say, uh, sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you, for, prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer to him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and or thirsty and, and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and, and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Contextually, this is saying, when you, at least right here, when you do these things that we're called to do, by showing hospitality, right? When you did it to fellow believers in this specific time, what is God saying? You did it to me. You did it to me. We could just stop there, right? I think we should keep reading a little bit more. Verse 41 says, "...then he will say to those on his left, "'Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared "'for the devil and the angels.'" For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they say themselves, then they themselves also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick? or in prison and did not take care of you, then he will answer to them saying, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these, who are these? Those who did that, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What is the difference between the non-believer and uh, the true believer, they showed hospitality. So we too must do that. Uh, I won't read it, but in Acts, uh, you can jot it down, Acts 16, Acts 16, uh, when it's talking about Paul and Lydia, uh, God is, is uh, I mean, Paul is teaching. God opens Lydia's heart in order to understand what Paul is saying. And after God opened Lydia's heart... What did Lydia do? She opened up her home. First uh, Peter 4, 7 says, verse 9, I mean, 1 Peter 4, verse 9, be hospitable, hospitable to one another without and here's the issue, without grumbling. Without grumbling. So the next one is uh, loving what is good. Loving what is good. It doesn't need mean, doesn't mean much explanation. It means what it says. This This man is to Love what is good. And you can tell a lot about looking at a, a man's life and observing what he surrounds, him, uh, surrounds himself with. Is he the kind of man who is involved with things that are good? Think about this. We're looking for elders, right? These are qualifications of elders. What are his friends like? Who are his friends? Who does he associate with? What does he do in his leisure time what does he power around him in the world what's precious to this man what's important to this man is it good is it good as you as you observe his life is his life defined by that uh philippians 4:8 says find this is big verse big verse here for all of us Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, okay, true, honorable, just, whatever is pure, what is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And I like what Vody bakum says, if you can't say amen, say ouch, because that definitely, as I was studying the Scripture, and I was telling John today, uh, I don't know if you were convicted when I was talking. To I know I was convicted, but uh, you think about it. Think about it. Is this man love good people? Does this man love good things? Does that define his, define his life? What that does, in my conviction, Cindy may say amen on this, you take that remote control and you go click off or change channel, right? It's really sad, really sad. 90% of the things that are on TV today go absolutely against what I just read. But in our minds, what do we do? You know, I've been saved, Phil, you know, I've been saved 30 years. I've been just hot and heavy in the Scripture for the last 10 years. I've grown in my faith, you know. And then so we're watching TV, and or you go to a movie. that every, It's the number one movie. It's got a great storyline. And all of a sudden, GD, cuss. And then there's scenes of two people outside of marriage or two men, or two women, or whatever. And we're like, oh goodness, I wish they wouldn't do that. Why can't they make a movie that doesn't have that stuff in there? And you keep watching. We don't need to do that, Phil. So, that spoke to me in areas of my life that I need to, definitely need to work on. So, he is to love what is good. His whole life is to be characterized By what is good. We're doing good on time, by the way. The next character trait is he must be sensible or self-controlled. Sensible or self-controlled. This word is made up of two words in the Greek. The first one is mind, and the second one is to save. To say it very simply, he is to be right-minded. He needs to be right-minded. He has control of his mind, right? He has control of his thoughts, contrary to what many people say you can't control your mind you can't control your thoughts I will say I would disagree with that I think you can I think it takes hard work it takes discipline, but I think you can take your thoughts captive or you can you can pull back from your memory bank of all the stuff we looked at that contradicted scripture that defiles our mind, it's going to be a lot harder the more that we do those things like that. So he is to be focused, not allowing circumstances or foolishness of others to distract him and gain his attention or interest. Going back to the text we've already uh, covered about being a drunkard, if you are right-minded... It's like with alcohol. I mean, we laid out very clearly, and we all three agree about that, about that topic. But, if you are drinking excessively, an excessive amount of alcohol, you're not right-minded. You know, a lot of you have the same, uh, some of the te- same testimony that I have. The most stupidest stuff I've ever done in my life was when I was excessively drinking alcohol. So, an elder has to have a right mind. And if he is intoxicated or crossed the line, that's something he's not going to be able to do. He's a man who is sensible. He exercises wisdom. A man with a cool mind, careful judgment, thoughtful, profound, deep, and disciplined mind. And in in 1 Timothy 3.2, it translates that same word as prudent. It also says that an elder... Not think about, but must be just. Must be just. This is the New uh, New Testament word for righteous. He is a man whose life is approved by God. This righteous man does what he ought. He is a person who conforms to the standard and the will of the character of God. And we, we look at people in Scripture as examples in uh, Luke 1.6. Speaking of Zacharias and Elizabeth. That's John the Baptist's parents, by the way. The Bible describes, describes them both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord. So his righteous character is what? Associated with righteous conduct. That's what Paul was calling for those men who would lead God's people. this They must be just. They must be the word... Takes on the meaning also of being fair-minded, and definitely you want that qualification when you're when you're dealing with church. You're dealing with the sheep of God, and not everything and not everything that goes on in a church is found in Scripture. By the way, there's things that pop up in Scripture that you're just not going to, you know, go to a Scripture and say, hey, "Here's how you do that and fix it." No, you need a godly man, fair-minded, full of wisdom, and and he'll be able to do that. First, First John 1, 9 says, speaking of the same word, we'll see, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, the word is righteous, just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this man reflects the character of God. He is just, he is righteous. It also says the elder must be devout. Some of your translations you know, say holy there, but he must be devout. First, uh, Thessalonians two nine states, for you remember, brothers, our labor and, and hardship, how working night and day, so that not not to burden, not to burden. Let me read that again. I'm, I don't. I went off in Philonese mode there. <laughs> for you remember, brothers, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly and righteously and blamelessly we have behaved towards you. So it means pure. It means unpolluted, free from a stain of sin. Again, that points back to that original word that we heard up front, above reproach, above reproach. In every area of his life, everywhere you look, he exhibits uh, these qualities of a man. He must be self-controlled. Self-controlled. That's a big one. As you observe an elder's life, he must be self-controlled. And he can only be that if he's submitted to the Holy Spirit control in his life. And self-control is a choice, by the way. A lot of people make bad choices. Kind of like what we talked about in in class this morning. You're going to do what you want to do, and you can control everything that you want to do. A preacher, a preacher, pastor, bishop, elder, has to exercise self-control. And if he's faced with an option, okay, there's something that flies up on the computer, OK? Boom. Self-control gone. Another issue pops over here. He has the ability to not look. Sometimes he does. Guess what did he do? He didn't exercise self-control. He has the ability to do that. And guess what? He must. If he doesn't, he can't be an elder. He's not self-controlled. It's really sad, you know, and I try to find some statistics. I, I heard some a while back about pastors today that view pornography. I mean, it's a big percentage. I mean, it's, if I'm going from my memory, 20, 30, 40% of elders look and struggle with pornography, okay? That's not exercising self-control. He doesn't, he doesn't have to, but an elder has to first corinthians nine twenty four do you not know that those who run a race all run but only one receives a prize run in such a way that you may win know everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things then then they then do do it to receive a corruptible crown but we an incorruptible therefore I run in such a way is not to, not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating in the air, but I discipline, this is huge, I discipline my body and make it my slave. So that, why does, why does Paul do that? This is, why this is why I discipline my body. This is why it doesn't control me, but I control it. I make it my slave. It doesn't own me, I own it. I exercise self-control. So that, after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. That's very interesting to me to hear Paul say that, that if he did not exercise self-control, he would be disqualified. Galatians twenty five twenty two says, But the fruit, you, you should know this by memory, uh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. So an elder has to do that. It's a qualification. If you're in Christ, you have the gift, okay, of self-control. And you can you can exercise it, or sometimes you don't. But it can be rough. It can be a battle. Paul was fully aware. The, even the one writing this, fully aware that it's definitely a struggle. Self-control, that's big. He would find himself also, if he did not do that, and you think about it, he's a man. He, he went through everything that men go through, but he mastered his flesh. We're not talking about perfection, by the way. There's no perfect man. There's nobody going to nail 100% consisten- consistently without wavering these qualifications. It's not going to happen. But his overall pattern His overall arching theme of looking at his life on the outside, and I'm going to say on the inside, is he meets and fulfills these these qualifications. It does take work, but he has to do it. He must exercise discipline and self-control. And that's kind of, uh, that's the qualifications. And what we see here in verse 9, as we get to that, I'll read it real quick. We're moving to some doctrinal issues here. Everything else has been moral. The character of a man. Who is he? Who is he? Here, we're going to see something else. Holding fast the faithful word, which, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort and sound doctrine and reprove those who contradict. He can reprove those who contradict. And we haven't addressed it much. We've mentioned it a couple of times, but, but deacons also, all these, all these things we've talked about, uh, as far as moral qualifications, they are exactly the same as a deacon. Now that really blows my mind, because not long after I got saved, I was very, I was very busybody. I was quickly put in a row of a deacon, okay? Definitely was not qualified. <laughs> You know, based on what I'm looking at here. But the only difference between a deacon and an elder, a deacon has no authority. Unfortunately, in most Baptist churches, deacons pretty much run the church. The pastors or elders submit to or have to answer to them. That's totally a void of what the Scripture says. If you're doing it, please stop and repent, okay? They have no authority. Uh, and the thing that separates an elder from a deacon is the the... The elder is has the gift, I call it the gift of teaching and preaching God's word. He has to be able to do that. Deacon doesn't, but an elder an elder does. And you can look at Blake I think Blake talked about that a while back. you can read I think the beginnings of what a a, a deacon does uh, in Acts six and and what they do basically. Is is help with the elders to to administer things that need to happen within the within the congregation, and what that does is free free the elder to do things that he's he's called to do, which is to feed, lead, guide the sheep, and uh, and to pray, and that's how those two offices work together. He must hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast means to strongly cling or adhere to something. He must hold fast to Scripture. And scripture alone, not philosophy, not tradition, not the culture, the elder pastor is to cling to God's word. Cling to God's word. They have to be faithful to it. They have to respect it. They have to believe it and they have to obey it. 1 Timothy 4 6, in pointing out these things to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. An elder must hold to the word. He must submit himself to the word, applying it in his own life, the very truths of this word. And I tell you what, it's an absolute tragedy for a elder or pastor to to stand behind the pulpit in front of God's sheep and neglect the word. His primary job is to open this word, to preach this word, to explain this word and to show the sheep how to apply this word. That's what an elder does. And one of my favorite verses that that uh, we read it a few weeks ago, but I love it. Ezra 7:10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God of Yahweh. Did he just leave it there? Did he just leave it there and study it and get puffed up with knowledge and go around and tell everybody what to do and what to No, he didn't do that. He studied the law of Yahweh. And then what did he do? He practiced it. After he studied it, after he lived it out, what did he do next? He teached it. He teached his statute, and judgment to Israel. He holds fast to the word. He's disciplined. Like John said, I find it real hard, I'm just going to shoot you straight, sometimes to read my Bible. I really do. It's hard to prepare a sermon. If you looked in a dictionary and looked up the word procrastinator, you'd see my face underneath it. I'm always, why do something today when you can do it tomorrow? That's my life. What do you do? Discipline. Discipline. It's a choice. That's what an elder does. He disciplines himself. And so many times, when you're when you here and preaching today, uh, a couple nights ago, I'm just standing, I'm standing watching TV, and I'm sorry, I'll just tell you real quick, Joel Osteen was on, and, uh, Cindy walked by 10, 15 minutes later, she said, you still watching that? I said, yeah. <laughs> and so he was, on, he was on the tube, and what did he do? You know what? You're a victor. You're the best. God wants the best for you. You can overcome. You are awesome. You're not like what they say about you. This is who you are. You're not this. This is you. And then 15 minutes later, when Sidney walks by, you know what he was saying? You're a victor. That's not you. That's not who you are. That's who they say you are. This is who you are. I'm like, Joel Osteen, get back to the Word. Get back to the Word. You know, you know why he don't and so many more? It takes discipline. You have to get in the Word. It doesn't come easy. Why do we have shadow churches? Because we have weak pulpits. Weak men of God who won't teach the Word of God. MacArthur says, It's a failure in the area of holding fast the faithful Word that is largely responsible for the superficial self-elevating preaching and teaching in many evangelical churches. The weak, shallow, insipid sermonettes for Christianettes. Here is the real villain that has led so many to be converted to what they consider relevancy, and therefore to preach a pampering psychology or become stand-up comments, comics, storytellers, clever speechmakers, entertainers, who turn churches into what John Piper in his most excellent book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching, has called the slapstick of evangelical worship. He's gotta to cling to God's word. He's gotta do it. Why? So that. He will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and what else? To reprove those who contradict it. If you don't hold on to it, if you don't cling to the faithful word, you're not going to be able to do what God has called you to do as a pastor. You can't do that. I see that in so that, so that. You see a positive and you see a negative. Exhort and reprove. Exhort means to urge, to beseech, to encourage. It literally means to call alongside of for the purpose of giving strength and help. He is to exhort in sound doctrine. This word here is where we get the the English word hygienic, right? It has the basic meaning of being healthy and wholesome, referring to that which protects and preserves life. So an elder is to teach sound doctrine. And this sound doctrine, what does it do? It protects. It it, uh, preserves their spiritual health. It's a weighty, weighty, weighty task. He's to teach sound doctrine. 2 Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom... Preach the word. Preach the word. When do we do this? When do we do this? Here's when you do it. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. Why? Why do these things? Verse 3. For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting But wanting to have their ears tickled, what do these people do? Here's what they do. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with whose desires? Their own desires. And what will they do when they do this? They're going to turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to all myths. He must teach sound doctrine. Teach the book: there are times I get out to illustrate, talk about Morgan Freeman, but I better quickly back, get back into the book. Teach the book. Now the negative: reprove and refute those who contradict. They have to do that. An elder has to be confrontational too. Nobody, I don't know, some of you like like maybe to be confrontational. But an elder really has to sometimes address issues that's a lot easier not to address. He has to be willing to deal with things that go on within, within a church. I was talking to, uh, uh, a friend of mine. It's been several years ago. He was, he was uh, meeting with a, a preacher of another church somewhere off. And he asked me, my friend did, who had a meeting with this preacher, pretty big church, by the way. He said, uh, Phil, do you want to come and sit in while I talk to this preacher? I said, yeah, if you want me to, I'll be glad to. And so I was sitting in on the conversation. They were talking. It was really about ministry and things like that. And the preacher said something. And he said there was something going on in his church and it had been going on. I think it probably was going on before he got there, but it was not biblical. Matter of fact, it crossed the line. And I said, well, what are you, what are you doing about that, steward? You know, I didn't. I'm just. I I did ask him, "What What are you doing about that?" <laughs> I wasn't that harsh, but we have learned shepherds are God's stewards. They don't make the rules; they just enforce them. It's the elders' job to enforce and steward God's instructions. I said, "So, what What are you doing about that?" He said, "Man, I'm just preaching. I'm just teaching the word, and hopefully one day they'll listen and step down." You can't. Do, <laughs> you can't do that. So sometimes you have to be. You have to be confrontational and, uh, and deal with things in the church. Reprove means to ref- reprove or refute means to speak against, speak against against. In the churches at Crete, there were some speaking against sound doctrine. We'll find out beginning next week about that. We don't ignore that. We don't ignore that. The Bible says in, in what we're going to uh, read. What's got to happen to those guys who are doing some pretty bad things? They must be silenced. So, when the Word of God is contradicted, the elder must be able, he must have enough wisdom and Scripture to refute the error. And you got to know the Word. you got to know the Word to be able to do that. you got to be careful uh, when you do that. I, I think most Christians really... I would say really want to know the truth. Uh, but sometimes, you know, you'll find in congregations that somebody might say something over here that's wrong. And you know it's wrong. And I've been there. I've done that. And I struggle with this, by the way. It's common saying you hear say every so often. If all you see is nails, what do you want to do? You want to hammer them. That's not right. That's not right. That's no, you don't do that. You deal with it, but you don't crush people who, because I'm just so thankful that I wasn't crushed in my life when I was off. You know? Even studying with these two guys here over these last several months, I've had to, I've thought a certain way and I'm like, you know what? I think I'm glad they didn't slap me upside the head when I said that. I think, I think they're right. And so I move. Right? You want to handle it the right way. Uh, he has to do that. There's, there's a right way and a wrong way. And I'm about to close. Um, I was talking to a lady, it's been several years ago, speaking of other Christians and sometimes uh, getting things wrong, I was talking to her, real nice lady, uh, I would say she's a Christian, I don't know her heart, I would say that, and she was she was talking about somebody, a, a guy that we both knew, and she really was talking in a negative way, and she said... Uh, you know, he's, he, he, he thinks this, and that's not right, and yada, yada, and just really threw him under the bus. And this guy was really a, a good guy, you know, nice, didn't have no agendas, but she didn't believe in what he believed. And as she was speaking, I, I had my phone in my pocket, so I pulled my phone in my pocket, and I said, can I read you something? And so what I did, I took, my, took the Word of God out, my electronic Word of God. I looked down, I began to read Scripture, and I began to explain scripture. I just read it and I explained it and I looked up at her face. It looked like she swallowed a goldfish. She says, Oh my! Oh my! And my only conclusion was that she thought a certain way but she never had anyone explain to her what the scripture actually says. Now what did what did she change her mind about what she thought? I don't know. But I know I was, I know I gave her the word. I know I was as humble and, and tried to teach in a, a very understanding way. We know that Hebrew says the word will not return void. Cuts in, cuts out. An elder has to be able to handle the word and use it to exhort and refute error. Ephesians 4.11 and he gave, he gave, uh, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip. This is why he gives these, by the way, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son and God to mature manhood, to the measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ. That's what we want to do here so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, this is how we do it. This is how we do it. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up and every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it has been equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so it builds up itself in love." That's how we do it. An elder is to know the Scripture, he is to be devoted to Scripture, he is to teach the Scripture, uh, practice the Scripture, refute those who contradict the Scripture, and and in a way, and do it in a love. I want to read this last Scripture, and we'll close in prayer. And we'll go get something to eat. I'm sure that y'all got a big dinner plan. This is Second Timothy uh, two, verse twenty two. Now. Flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculation, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but he must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when done wrong, in a previous sermon, I said sheep are defenseless. Actually, if you want to know the truth, sheep can bite sometimes. I mean, the human sheep. So he's got to be patient with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Talked about that this morning also. So what do we do with all of this? Well, we, we've we learned what to look for as we grow in a church. We learn to look for, and the people of the congregation, they do have a part to play in that. They are to observe uh, the men's lives if they do not meet one of all of these qualifications here, it's not time. It's not, not saying that one day they won't because there are seasons in our life where, where there's some sin, but you can't, you can't overlook those things. But also know this, what's re, what is required of an elder is commanded also to all of us. Hospitality is not an option that you cannot do. You have to do it. It's a command. All these things that, uh, uh, that an elder has to be qualified to do, the sheep are also. But these men have to do it. And again, we see today that he has to be gifted in teaching. That did not mean you're gifted in teach. Let me tell you something. You teach. You teach, by the way. All people are commanded to teach. Teach what you know to your children, to your, your family, your friends, to strangers, people you don't know. We're all teachers. So, really, we all need to apply this to life. And when we get elders and we get to a point where we get deacons, uh, we should be able to look at, look at their lives and say, I want to be like them. Why? Because they are exhibiting exactly what God requires of them. So so next week we'll begin with, uh, we'll see elders in action. They got a job to do in Crete. and There's some cats in there. They got to be shut up, okay? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you didn't leave this up to us to come up with some plan to, to pick and choose uh, men to shepherd and steward your word. You've laid it out extremely clear. May we be faithful to the word of God. By your grace may we be faithful may we adhere to may we cling to may we preach and lift up God's word may we may we study it may we practice and live it and how sadly would it be if we took in all of what we learned today in our small group and our and our lesson today and hold that to ourselves no May we teach that to others also, set so that they may do the same. Again, we thank you uh, for your word, and we thank you uh, for what you've done today through it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.